0: Well, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We have already jumped around a little bit just because of the way that Matthew chapter 13 is written. Uh, so we're going to be looking today at verses 10 to 17 and then verses 34 and 35. Our passage today starts off with the disciples asking Jesus a question. Uh, it says that the disciples then came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And last week, we, uh, as we began chapter 13, we, uh, we got familiar with the parable of the sower and Jesus making a point that the word goes out, the word of God goes out, and, and people respond to the word of God in different ways. Uh, and, and we unpacked that last week. And so... In this week's passage, the disciples start of asking the question, Why do you speak to them in parables? And if you're like me, it kind of begs the question first, Well, what, what is a parable? But if we're going to ask why Jesus speaks in parables, we have to take a moment to learn what a parable is. R.C. Sproul has something helpful, uh, I think, in us uh, defining what a parable is. And he says this He says, The very word parable comes from two Greek words, the first being para. Uh, which is a prefix that refers to something that is alongside something else. For example, paralegals work alongside lawyers as helpers. The second Greek word is ballo, which means to throw or to hurl. So parable means something that is thrown alongside of something else. In order to illustrate the truth he is teaching, Jesus throws a parable alongside of it. Now, there's a difference between a parable and an allegory. We don't look at parables as allegories. Allegories might be that we would look at kind of every piece of the story and and try to figure out the meaning of every component and every piece in a story. Uh, That's not typically what a parable is. Parables typically are driving home one point. And and so Jesus employs parables in order to uh, illustrate the point that he's trying to make in order to drive home the point that he's trying to make. And so last week's passage was an example of a parable where he talked about the different kinds of seeds uh, that get thrown or the word gets thrown out and and, and depending on where it lands, uh, it grows or doesn't grow uh, in different ways. And so immediately upon Jesus telling a parable, the disciples asked the question, why why do you speak to them in parables? Uh, If I were one of the disciples following Jesus, I might be like, why can't you just speak to them plainly? Right, so everybody knows what's going on. Why do you present a story that somebody has to figure out the meaning of? And Jesus answers in verse eleven. He says, "And he answered to them, to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." And so we'll pause here for a second and, and just unpack what Jesus is saying here. So we we don't have time today to fully unpack Jesus' statement when he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. But what we can plainly see from Jesus making that statement is that it's been given to some to know, and it's been given to some to not know. And and that comes against maybe a little bit of our uh, sensibilities of, you know, why would God keep something hidden? From somebody. And again, we don't have time to fully unpack that today, but Jesus plainly tells us that some will know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and to some it has not been given. And so we see this illustrated in last week's passage of the sower. We see this illustrated as as the word goes out as a seed, and in of the four instances that Jesus unpacks for us, only in one instance does the seed grow and take root. And in the other instances, it, it doesn't. This draws me to think about Paul's words, the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And I'm just going to read Ephesians chapter 1. And, and again, we don't have time to fully unpack all of this today, but, but listen to the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in this passage about God choosing and predestining. And it's all to the praise of His glory and grace. Now, when this doctrine of election is put in front of us, it kind of rubs up against us in a way where we tend to think, well, it's not fair that God would choose some and not choose others. And we tend to get offended by it. But the Apostle Paul, who was perhaps the greatest evangelist known in the world, in all of time and all of history, is telling us here, again, plainly, the plain reading is that we see that, that God makes it for some to know and for some to not know. Now, our starting point in this matters where we think about uh, this doctrine of election. If our starting point, if we we, we tend to think like God is love and God is love, the Bible tells us that God is love. Uh, We have a really messed up version in our world today of what love is, but God is love. The Bible tells us, gives us the picture of what perfect love is. And our reaction to this is typically, well, if God is love, why would anybody, why would it be for anybody to not know? Why would anybody be condemned to hell if God is love? If we were to keep reading Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, we would see as we get into chapter 2 that Paul plainly tells us that we were all on a crash course with hell. Every single one of us, all of humanity, all of humans throughout time and throughout history, we are born in this predicament of sin. And we can trace it all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, the first few chapters. When God created everything that there is to be created, and at the pinnacle of creation, He created the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And it took no time for Adam and Eve, for the creation to rebel against its creator. Three chapters into the Bible, and creation has rebelled against the creator, thereby sin entering into the world. And every human being that would come after Adam and Eve has inherited this problem of sin. Right? It, it's made its way kind of down the spiritual gene pool throughout time and history to where you and I have inherited that same problem of sin, that same problem of rebelling against our Creator. This is the predicament of humanity. The Apostle Paul, if we were to read Romans 1, would tell us the entire problem of sin and humanity is that we worship the creation over and above the Creator. We rebel against our Creator. If that's your starting point, then the question that we ask is not why would God choose some and not others. But we ask the question, why would God choose anybody? Right? Why would God be gracious to anybody if we're all just a bunch of rebels? Right? Why would God be gracious to anybody? And, and so back to our Matthew passage, Jesus is plainly telling His disciples to them who are standing in front of Him, the twelve, To them, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would say that this isn't a highly guarded secret that Jesus is talking about here. This isn't like top secret kind of secret. But to them and thereby to anybody who would follow Christ, it's been given to them to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the Ephesians passage that we just read, that this is, not to anybody's detriment, but this is to the praise of His glory and grace. It's in praise to the glory of God that He would say to anybody, come. I think about the Old Testament. You think about Jacob. He's kind of a big name in the Bible, somebody you might be familiar with. Jacob, the guy was a dirtbag. There were no redeemable qualities about Jacob. The name Jacob means heel grabber because when he was born, he was a twin and he was hanging on to the heel of his twin when he was born. And and the the connotation to being a heel grabber is like you're a conniver. You're a snake. You're not a good guy. And the story of Jacob's life, we we know that he wasn't a good guy. The guy would lie and cheat and steal to achieve his end, whatever it takes to win, was kind of his mentality. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you ever thought about how God identifies himself in the Old Testament? He identifies himself as the God of Abraham, another big name that you might be familiar with. We know Abraham did some cool things. We can see why God would attach his name to that guy. right? He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. Isaac has kind of a cool story. We could see why God would attach his name to that. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It was like, what? We get the first two. Why why would God attach his name to say, I'm the God of the heel grabber, I'm the God of the dirt bag, the slime ball, the snake in the grass? Why would he do that? He does that to the praise of his glory and grace. And there was redemption if you don't know the story of Jacob. There, there was redemption in his life. God redeemed the man that would seem to be irredeemable early in his life. And God later changed his name from Jacob the heel grabber to Israel, which means one who strives with God. That was part of his redemption that he came from being the snake in the grass to the one who strives with God. And there was redemption that happened, and that was absolutely to the praise of His glory. The Apostle Paul would probably say if you asked him the question after reading this Ephesians passage, well, what about Jacob? He would say, well, Jacob was predestined according to the purpose of God's will. It was for him to know. It was for him to know who God was. And so Jesus is telling His disciples again plainly that it's for some to know the secret of the kingdom of heaven but it's for others that it has not been given. And I guess I would say to us, as, as maybe this doctrine of election might be rubbing up against you right now, if God were small enough for us to fully wrap our mind around who He is and why He does what He does, He might not be worthy to occupy the throne of heaven. And I'm not saying that as just kind of a cheap out On something. We're finite beings and God is is infinite. And we don't possess the capability to fully wrap our minds around who God is. God has revealed himself to us in his word and and most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's given us to know. But there's so much mystery to who God is that we're not capable of fully understanding who he is and why he does what he does. But here at the door, we we believe in the sovereignty of God, which is to say that that we believe that God is over everything. There's nothing that happens anywhere outside of His watch. Nothing that happens anywhere in the entirety of all creation that that God doesn't have His watchful eye on. And nothing that in some way that He does not order. Jesus goes on and Matthew chapter thirteen and verse twelve by saying, "For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away." So, what's Jesus saying here? What what is it that the one who has? What is it that they have? And the one that doesn't have, what is it that they lack? And probably our first inclination in in reading this is to think about maybe wealth or possessions or the things of this world. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is saying here is to the one who has the secret of the kingdom of heaven, in other words, to the one who knows, to the one who knows God, to the one who believes in the Christ who is standing in front of them in this moment, to that one, even more will be given. And the more that is to be given, I don't think he's, again, talking about possessions or wealth or the things of this world. To the one who knows the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven will be given to that one. But to the one who doesn't know, the one who doesn't know the secret of the kingdom of heaven, even what he has... And the person who doesn't know the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the only thing that they have is the here and the now. One day, the here and the now is going to go away. It's not going to be here. right? As as the kingdom of heaven is fully ushered in for eternity, the things that we have now will be no more. And so this is kind of a harsh statement that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you know, you know. If you don't know, you don't know. If you know, it's, it, it's going to end well. If you don't know, it's not going to end so well. And he's, he doesn't specifically tell us here that he's referencing heaven and hell, but I think he is. I think he's talking about eternity to these people. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. He's talking about those who would reject Jesus for who he is. And in verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Remember, his disciples asked the question, why do you speak in parables? He tells them, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and with their eyes they're closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So kind of a few more harsh statements, but we have a little bit of hope that's starting to emerge here. So we've seen God's sovereignty in saving some. And the fact that he would save any is to the praise of his glorious grace and according to the purpose of his will. Now we see some human responsibility enter in to the equation here. Jesus says, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he references this prophecy from Isaiah. And and I don't know if you Heard the language in this prophecy of Isaiah. But he says, They will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they're closed. Harsh language from Isaiah. Definitive language from Isaiah. He's not just saying that people aren't paying attention. He seems to be alluding to this intentional willingness to never hear, to never see, to never understand. This is harsh. I I might ask, just my analytical brain, I might ask the question to the one who is unwilling to see, unwilling to hear, unwilling to understand... I might ask the question, what if? What if God exists? I like to think in what ifs. What if there is a God? What if He exists? What if He's sovereign over all? What if He sent His Son to redeem us irredeemable sinners? What if it's true that nothing happens anywhere that that is outside of His watch? What if? What does that mean to the one who, who rejects that kind of God? Going back to some words from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Apostle Paul is employing some hyperbole here to make a point. He says, look around the room. Where, Where are the wise people? Right, if the apostle—I'm not calling you this—but the apostle Paul is saying that this is a room full of fools. Right? Consider your calling, he says. There, look around. There, there's not many of us here that are wise according to worldly standards. Not many people that are powerful. Not many people that are of noble birth. Look around the room, Paul would say, "You all are a bunch of nobodies." But he would also say that it's God's plan to use nobodies. To tell the world about somebody. It's by God's design that it would be that way. He says that God chooses what is low and despised in the world in order to accomplish his purposes. And even this is to the praise of of the glory and the grace of God. Right? God could do things quite differently than he has chosen to do things. But according to the Apostle Paul, it's God's plan to use nobodies to tell the world about somebody. And that's God's design. And He tells us to some people, that's going to be a stumbling block. To some people, our message, the folly of what we preach, Christ crucified, it's going to be a stumbling block to some people. It's going to rub up against them. It's going to rub them the wrong way. It's going to sound foolish. To others, to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who have come to Christ and received the message in faith, it's power and it's righteousness and it's sanctification and it's redemption, the message of the gospel. It's kind of funny how just in our polarized world, and our world seems to be getting more polarized as as time goes on. Pick your hot-button topic, whatever it is. Pick your favorite politician, whoever it might be. And you can just peruse the headlines and you can see people from one side of the aisle claiming a headline, oh, this person got crushed and this person got owned. You can see people from the other side of the aisle look at that same headline and declare a victory. (laughs) Right? Foolishness and power. We see it in our world. The gospel is no different. Some people... It's going to rub them the wrong way and some people are going to receive it as the power of God to the praise of His glory. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14 that the fool says in his heart there is no God. They, meaning humanity, are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We're getting to hope here in a minute, but these are harsh, harsh words from the psalmist. That God looks down from heaven and says nobody's good. That, that's bad news. But when the God of the universe who created everything to the praise of His glory looks down on humanity and says they're all corrupt... Do you remember a time in the Bible? Maybe when we were here before, Genesis chapter six. Right, humanity was all corrupt, and God wiped out humanity with a flood, in judgment of the sinfulness of humanity. Thankfully, God gave us a promise that He wouldn't do that again. But all these thousands of years later, not not much has changed. Humanity is still corrupt. Sin is still a problem that needs to be dealt with. Jesus, back in Matthew 13, at the end of verse 15, says, Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. There's hope. It's not all bad news. Bad news is significant. The bad news is severe. But there is hope that Jesus says that if we would turn to Him, If we would hear, if we would see, if we would understand, He would heal us. He would take care of the problem of sin. And this is the message of the hope of the Christian. That if we turn to God, He'll take care of the problem. He'll bring redemption like He did with Jacob, the one who seemed irredeemable. You and I are not all that different than Jacob. We're not different at all than Jacob. We all, apart from the intervention of Christ, are irredeemable because of our sin. It's corrupted everything about us. But God says if we would turn. We see His sovereignty and who comes to Him and who, who is to know and not to know, but we also see human responsibility that, that we turn to God, that we would willingly open up our eyes and open up our ears And that we would understand and turn to Him and that He would heal us. He says to His disciples in verse 16 of Matthew 13, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so He reminds us, of the position that we are in on this side of the cross. Now, he's speaking to his disciples and he's in front of them. He had not gone to the cross yet, but the Messiah is standing in front of them. For you and I, the Messiah is not standing in front of us, but we're on this side of the cross where we can look back and know and see what Jesus did, the lengths to which he went in order to deal with our problem of sin. And he says, You're blessed you're sitting here today proclaiming to be a follower of Christ, you're blessed because you see and you hear and you understand. But then he reminds us about those who have come before us, those who were on the front side of the cross, longed to see it happen. They longed for the Messiah. The hope of Israel was that one day the Messiah would come. Historically, Israel was a very oppressed people. They seemed to always be under somebody's thumb. And their hope was that one day the Messiah would come and save them from oppression. And the Messiah did come, not necessarily in that moment to save them from oppression, but to save them from the greater oppression of sin, not just the oppression of their enemies. And Jesus reminds us that as He's standing in front of His disciples, that there were people before them that longed for what they get to see right in front of them right now with their eyes wide open. Many prophets and many righteous people up to that point in history longed to see what his disciples could plainly see and plainly hear in front of them. And we have to remember as human beings living in America in 2023. History longed for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah came. He conquered sin and He conquered death. And we we don't look forward to that event. We look backwards to it, while at the same time looking forward to His kingdom fully being ushered in and the ultimate redemption of all things. And that's the hope that we have as Christians. Jumping down to verse 34 and 35. All of these things that Jesus said to the crowd in parables, indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus fulfilling prophecy by speaking in parables. But Jesus having a grander plan to utter According to the prophet, what has been hidden since the foundation of the world? Now we think about creation. We go, we, we jump back to Genesis here for just a moment. So We think about creation. Creation rebelled against the Creator, Adam and Eve, right? Rebelled against God. They sinned against God. We see that in, in, in Genesis. But the other thing that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that God having the solution to the problem, really before the problem ever came up. <laughs> but, but the moment that the problem of sin entered into the world, Jesus tells us that, that one day, right? He uses this illustration of, of the heel of the woman and the serpent. The serpent will strike the heel of the woman and the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Right? We don't have time to unpack that today either, but that, that's, that's God telling us that one day the Messiah is going to come and He's going to take care of all of us. And that's been hidden, in a sense, until the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we got to see His glory. And Jesus showed up and He loved and He cared for those who rebelled against Him. And He, he spoke to them and he, he gave them truth and gave them opportunities to hear and understand the truth. The writer of Hebrews in the first chapter, the first few verses of the first chapter, says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews calls our attention to, this, to the fact that, that long ago God did speak to us through prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. He's revealed himself to us most fully in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Savior and the Redeemer of all things. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that it's Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Bible tells us how, how creation happened. They spoke it, God spoke it into existence. He said, Spoke into nothingness and said, Let there be, and then there was. That's the word of power by which Jesus upholds the universe. And after making purification for sins, after He did what He did on the cross, after He had subjected Himself to torture by His own creation, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, taking His rightful place as being superior to the angels because His name, the Bible tells us, is the name that is above every name. The Bible tells us that there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It makes no distinction between those who do it willingly and those who do it unwillingly. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So for all of those who are unwilling to hear and unwilling to see and unwilling to understand, there's going to come a time where God's going to break that will and and show them which way is up. And so now we come back again to this question, why why did he speak to them in parables? Jesus spoke in parables because it's for some to know and some to not know. And for those who know, those are the ones who God has chosen to belong to him and to spend eternity in heaven with him. For those who don't know, they face an eternity in hell. Again, bad news, but the hope is that If you would open your eyes, if you would open your ears, if you would be willing to understand who God is and the great lengths to which He has went to love you and turn to Him in repentance and in faith, He'll deal with your problem of sin. He'll deal with your problem of sin. And that's, that's the good news. That's the hope that we have as Christians. And so let me just encourage you as you consider this Again, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so as you, as you go out there, back to where you came from, you have you, you fools <laughs> have a message to give to the world that, that, that God has, has given us to give to those who have yet to know Him. God's plan is that He would use the redeemed, use those who are reconciled to bring reconciliation to those who have yet to be reconciled to Christ. That's the plan. So I would ask you to consider your part in taking that message. Like right? social media companies today would call you the street team, right? Go out in the street and, and promote the product, they would say. Right? Jesus is far more than a product to be promoted. But you're the street team that, that's called to go out and to take this message into the world. You are the people who ought to be most thankful that your eyes are open, to be most thankful that your ears can hear, and to be most thankful that you understand. Nothing about this tells us that the reason that we came to Christ is because we were smart enough to figure it out. Nothing about this tells us that. Everything about this tells us that we've come to Christ because He looked at us and said, I love you, you're with me. And if that's true, we have nothing to be mad about or offended about by those who have yet to come to Christ. We should have nothing but love and compassion in our hearts for those who have yet to know Christ as we know Christ. And so be encouraged that God has given you salvation, He's given you redemption, He's given you sanctification, He's given you righteousness. He's given you a message to take out to the rest of the world saying that these things are possible. And they're possible through faith and repentance. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from our way of living. We're going to go through more parables as time goes on. And, And again, these parables are meant usually to drive a singular point home to us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And so I would also encourage you, don't let that be lost on you as we make our way through the parables. That as God reveals truth to you, that your eyes would be open, that your ears would hear, that you'd be receptive to understand that truth and, and let it affect the way that you live. With that in mind, we get to today share communion together. Communion is something that we do here once a month at the end of the month. And if you're new with us, communion is simply Christ for you. Communion is something that we, it's one of the sacraments that, that, that Christ has instituted within the church where we remember all of the things that we talked about today. We remember His sacrifice on the cross. We remember that His blood was shed for us in place of us. We remember that His body was broken for us, in place of us. Right? The, the, the punishment that Jesus received, His death on the cross was something that, that you and I rightfully deserve because of our rebellion against God. We deserved it. Jesus was an innocent man, and He obeyed the Father perfectly. He didn't deserve it. But He stepped in and He said, I'm going to take what you all deserve. but take the punishment that you all deserve. I take the death that you all deserve. And in exchange for taking that, when you come to me in faith, I'm going to give you righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Not a fair trade at all. And so communion may may seem like a a simple act of drinking a little bit of juice and, and having a little bit of bread, but it's far more than that. And we're called to when we do communion by the Bible to do it in remembrance of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to do it in remembrance of what he did for us. Not what we do for him, but what he did for us. And so in just a moment, um, we're going to play a song and, and you can come up and you can grab uh, the elements of communion and you can take them back to your seat and, and just take them on your own. Uh, this this is for followers of Christ to remember the sacrifice of Christ. If you're here today and, and, and you're not following Christ, if you haven't come to Him in faith and you haven't come to Him in repentance, you can do that now. <laughs> but but if, that, if that's you, then this doesn't mean anything to you until you come to Christ, until you remember His sacrifice, until you commemorate uh, what He did on the cross. And so for the believer, this is something that, that we celebrate and we, we remember a death to the praise of His glory and grace the unbeliever it's it's nothing more than than juice and crackers but but again if you're here today and you haven't come to faith in christ and this has kind of caused you to think about you know where you're at in terms of your relationship to god you can come to him now you can put faith in him now you can repent now of your sins and we would encourage you to do that let me pray for us and then we'll take communion father we're thankful this morning um For all that you've done for us, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful uh, that you are the initiator of relationship with sinful human beings. God, we're thankful that redemption is possible. We're thankful that that you haven't just wiped us off of the earth and that you love us enough to give us an opportunity to turn to you in faith and repentance. And so I would pray uh, today that if there are any here that have not done that, that they would do that now, that they would turn to you in faith and repentance. God, for those who are here that know you, that, uh, that we would remember today what you've done for us, that we would remember the cross, that we would glory in the cross, and that you would help us to continually be a thankful people for the sacrifice that you've made for us. We pray also that you would help us to be people that uh, that would go out into the world and take this message of reconciliation, that, that reconciliation with God is a thing that's possible Uh, to a world who desperately needs to know it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.